Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, Gary Epstein. Running an independent internal medicine practice is becoming less common these days. Today, on Voices from American Medicine, we're going to speak with Dr. Audrey Corson of Bethesda Physicians in Bethesda, Maryland, about the issues she faces maintaining her independence, which Dr. Corson thinks is critical to maintain quality care. Dr. Corson, welcome to Voices from American Medicine. Thank you, Gary. First, before we dive into a bunch of questions I have for you, I'd love to kind of get some background on how you got into medicine in the first place. What inspired you to become a physician? Well, I actually had probably an unusual start into medicine in that I grew up at the time when it was, girls, do you want to be a teacher or do you want to be a nurse? Not knowing much about nursing and knowing a lot about teaching, going through school, I picked nursing and went through that route all the way through to become a nurse practitioner when it became eminently clear that it just wasn't enough. And at that point, I went back to medical school. How did you find going back to medical school as a nurse practitioner at that time? Were, were there people that made it more difficult? Was it unusual at that point for women to be going to medical school? Yeah, there, out of a class of 100, there were only 10 of us. As you know now, the number is more like 45%. So it was a very different experience at that time. But I can't say anybody gave me much trouble. What about being a nurse practitioner did you enjoy or find motivating enough to say, I'm going to go back and complete this process and become a physician? Well, I mean, I liked working with patients. I liked the chase for the diagnosis, which, you know, as a nurse practitioner or a nurse or anyone else, you're not involved in really at all. It just became very clear to me that I didn't know enough to be really competent and really good for my patients. You just can't without that additional training. And, I mean, that goes to a whole other issue that we'll hopefully talk about a little bit later of extenders. But I feel like a medical education was exactly what I needed. And then, of course, I had lots of patient skills that I had acquired from years of patient care, which I think helped me in my in the second role. How long were you a nurse practitioner before you went oh, back to school? Oh, just a short time. Yeah. And a year and a half was enough to make it was obviously clear yes. that this was not an end. Tell us a little bit about your practice now. How big is it and what kind of practice? How would you describe it? Well, we've gone through an evolution in our practice. I have worked with the same physicians now for about 26 years. And when we started, we were part of a large group as was the style, you know, back in the 90s. You're acquired by this hospital, and then the other hospital acquires you. And we worked very hard. It was a very traditional medical practice. When I look back on the schedules, it's a little overwhelming to see what we were attempting to do. And one day we got a letter saying, your office is closing. Pack up your desk and leave the premises and with a date about six weeks down the road. <laughs> Because we weren't making any money, which you can't with capitation and all the insurance plans. It's almost impossible. So we got ourselves an attorney, an accountant, a business manager, and in six weeks we incorporated and took over the practice on our own. But doing math, we realized that the way we wanted to practice medicine, the way we thought was represented really quality care, could not fit this same model. So at the same time, and this was now 11 years ago, 
we ended all of our contracts with all insurers and sent out a letter to our patients to that effect. And that's how we've practiced now for the past 11 years. We've taken on two younger partners and are about to take on one more. So we have thousands of physician listeners on the channel, and if they're interested in following similar pattern or path that you did, tell us a little bit about the challenges if they want to kind of talk to their patients or announce to their patients that they're going to kind of form this independent practice and and the challenges that you've faced and overcome. I would say the first thing you have to do is know your numbers. And this is something we as doctors are not trained to do and don't like to do. But you have to know your overhead. You have to know your expenses. You have to be able to cut back as much as you can on services that you're using now that maybe you don't really need. And the most striking example is your office manager. I mean, you have to answer the question, do I need my office manager? Because that is a big drain on a primary care practice. Once you know your numbers and you know exactly how much money does it cost for a patient to walk in your door before you ever see them, then you can evaluate what you need to do. Then you can look at your contracts and decide, this contract is meeting my expenses and actually letting me have a salary, and I'm taking a loss on every patient from this other plan. And uh, what we found is that all the plans, although they varied a little bit, were all the same. We sent out a letter and explained that the reason we were not having these contracts anymore is that we felt these companies were inhibiting our ability to practice quality medicine. We couldn't spend time we needed to with patients. We couldn't answer phone calls as quickly as we wanted. There just weren't enough hours in the day to accomplish what we thought had to be accomplished. The other math you have to do, you know, I'm talking about establishing a reasonable fee schedule, but the math that we came up with is that if two-thirds of our patients left and the remaining third paid our fee schedule, our salary stayed the same. Now, that's a pretty astonishing number. Yeah, I should say so. But that is the number. And that wasn't just based on conjecture. We really sat down and did our homework. So, I mean, I would say that's the first thing you have to do. And then you basically have to explain to your patients what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think that the patients who stay with you will see immediately the benefit And a lot of the patients who initially leave and say, oh, I need to find someone in my plan, come back in about two years and say to us, I give up. I can't do this. Can't get medical care like this. So we have seen a huge return to people we initially didn't see for a little while. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD XM Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Gary Epstein, and joining me today is primary care physician with Bethesda Physicians in Bethesda, Maryland, Dr. Audrey Corson. Dr. Corson, have you also implemented measures like electronic medical records into your practice and e-prescribing and used sort of the new media to assist? We are in the process. Three years ago, we started doing e-prescribing. E-prescribing is very interesting because I think when patients hear about it, they say, oh, that's great, you know. The problems, however, that we have encountered with e-prescribing are pretty interesting. 
you know, one of the problems with e-prescribing is who is going to pay for these technologies? And this goes across the board. Basically, right now, the doctors have to pay to use the technology unless you use free systems out there. And the pharmacy pays a bundle to take those prescriptions in. And the profits from e-prescribing are completely felt by the insurance industry and by the big PBMs, you know, by Medco, all scripts that you mail in, you know, all of the big pharmacy benefit managers. They get the benefits from this because they can flash their formulary to you and whatnot. I had an interesting meeting as part of MedCi, the Maryland Medical Association. I met with CMS mm-hmm. about e-prescribing, and I went along with someone representing all of the retail pharmacies in Maryland. So I was representing the doctor. He was representing the pharmacies, and we presented the problems that we are having with this, and they basically didn't care. I'll just give you one example. You know, if you fill a prescription in a pharmacy, you get a prescription number. The patient calls the pharmacy with that prescription number wanting a refill. You automatically get a fax sent to your office. However, if you have already written that prescription electronically, those systems don't talk to each other. If you fill the prescription by the fax, you've now filled that prescription twice. The systems within the pharmacy not talking to each other. But quite frankly, I think a lot of these pharmacies are struggling to stay alive because the insurers are paying them nothing for the medications. And I think the pharmacies are really hurting as well. So there's lots of confusion. I think in the future, there will definitely be benefits from this. But right now, we're taking baby steps. As far as the electronic medical record, we are looking at a system. Again, there's a free system out there that we are looking at. But in order to buy into a system, we always said we would like to hold our patient data in our office. But a system that does that is prohibitively expensive. So unless you are a giant subspecialty group, I think you can't afford it. So what's left are these systems that are online, you know, that you basically, they hold your data in a remote place. And even those systems, when you just think about training, hardware, everything that it takes to change to an electronic system, It's an enormous expenditure. And I know that there is supposed to be some money that will come back, but the more you look at those rules, it's all pay for performance. You know, it's a model that will involve probably every practice needing a full-time person just feeding data. I don't see us reaping the benefits from this. I do want to get your perspective because I think it's an interesting one as a former NP on this notion of practice extenders and how that is working now, your perspective on the role of NPs and PAs as a partner in practice. Well, you know, I think that one of the real benefits of good primary care is cost containment. When you really know your patients, really know your patients, you can order appropriate tests and keep costs down. When you don't know patients well, you tend to overorder. In the case of all of these, let's call them extenders, first of all, they're confusing people because of their terminology. You know, there are new exams out that are not PhDs, but are allowing people to call themselves a doctor of pharmacy 
a doctor of physical therapy, and a doctor of nursing. So when you go to see someone, if it's going to say Dr. Joe Smith, you absolutely will have no idea who you're dealing with. No idea. And the problem that we see is I think if these folks are working in teams, in teams with physicians, things can work. The question is, where should they be? So in other words, if you have a pediatrician's office with a pediatrician seeing the baby like every third visit and the NPs doing the interim visit, that's perfect. The place we see NPs being used, which we think is inappropriate, is on the bottom line, seeing the patient who walks in the door with the medical problem. In our office, we are blocks away from something called Miniclinic, which is run by CVS which makes plenty of money on all the prescriptions that are just sent to the pharmacy right next door. We have seen cases of people who come in with back pain, diagnosed with back spasm, but they didn't realize they had pilo. The people with the low bar pneumonia who have no breath sounds, they say the lungs are clear and send them out as viral. On a patient who couldn't open her mouth for a throat culture, and they said to her, oh, this must be strep, when any doctor would know that's a warning sign for a peritonsillar abscess. And we see these, we pick up all the mess, we get all the calls late at night. But when you have very little experience, have taken a lot of your courses online or in classrooms, you never see that patient in the middle of the night that we all saw during our training. So your sense is that the notion that this is access and affordable access to care for some patients who might be going for that sore throat to the ER is a risky venture. It's a risky venture. We are very sensitive to price. You know, you have to look at market forces. You come into my office with a sore throat, you're not paying any more than you would at Miniclinic, except the insurers incentivize people to go there. They want people to go there. They waive co-pays. They give them free backpacks before camp. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy things they do that you could never do in a physician's office. But there is a real difference between the care you're getting. Dr. Corson, this has been just a a pleasure, and our time has gone so fast, and I want to thank you for being my guest today, Dr. Audrey Corson, the primary care physician in an independent practice with the Bethesda Physicians in Bethesda, Maryland. I'd also like to thank MedKai, the Maryland State Medical Society, for nominating Dr. Corson to be on our show today. Dr. Corson, really, thanks again for being a guest on Voices from American Medicine. My pleasure. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by Gary Epstein.